From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We have the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey, faculty all at the Wharton School. Been doing Wharton Moneyball for more than seven years now. For the last 14 months or so, we've been doing it via Zoom. One of the upsides is that we usually have the whole crew here, which is a is a pleasure. So we're going to be here for the next two hours. We're going to open up with a little COVID. Then we're going to roll into some open mic segments. We're going to end with a terrific interview on the, the spin scandal or this, you know, would-be spin scandal in Major League Baseball. Find out what's going on on that from some recent journalist um, work. All right, guys. Afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon as we have been lately curious to open this thing up on the pandemic, of course, and ask what has caught your eye in coronavirus. Okay, well, there's a, I mean, there's not much going on in America except basically good news. I guess we can say that pretty heartily. Um, every, everything seems to be going down everywhere, um, more or less, not at the same rate. Um, I think New England has experienced probably the strongest kind of ra- most rapid decline. If I had to, to, to make a guess, I think that once you hit a certain fraction of the population, it, it really goes down rapidly. And it doesn't need to be more, really more than about 50 or 60%. So that would be my hypothesis. I don't know whether you guys agree or not. I'll just th- th- uh, throw out that most of my, my, if my hypotheses come from watching and tracking Israel so closely. They're at zero. They actually had a day of zero cases. Zero cases. Yeah, I saw zero that. Zero cases. I mean, we're um, still in the, we're still in the, Five oh, we're in the thousands, are we not? Tens Ten, of thousands. Yeah, Ten, yeah, Twelve thousand the last time I looked, but yeah. yeah. And and yeah, deaths, we are deaths we're still in hundreds <laughs> of deaths a day, right? That's so, correct. Yeah. Okay. So Shane. Well, I mean, I, I just to kind of follow up on what Audie was saying, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, we have seen pretty dramatic decreases, even though we are still in the hundreds in deaths and thousands in, in terms of cases in the U.S., even though we've completely plateaued, it seems, in terms of our vaccinations, right? So, you know, I think we're at uh, something like 52% across well, the don't, U.S. Don't say had... completely plateaued. I think well, we're at like a million a day, which is, you know, a third, a third of what it was at the peak. Yep. But it's a million a day and dropping. And of course, there's heterogeneity out there. There are some regions where yeah. they're doing like tens, tens a day. But, think, but as, as Audie pointed out, it, things are kind of going down everywhere and not necessarily like and it's not particularly correlated, at least not right now, with the places that are hot, you know, kind of ahead of the curve in terms of vaccinations versus behind the curve. I will say that uh, New England does claim that their correlation is causal. We all know that we can't infer causality, um, but they have the best, some of the best um, percentages. Who, who, who speaks country. for New England? Who's New England? Uh, yeah, 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 I got an email. Actually, it's interesting. You got an email from I'm, New England? That's yeah, awesome. I, I do from from New England. It came out, actually, I was put in charge uh, to try to find vaccine early for my son, and I, I signed up for some mailing list, and, as I did in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and I still get an update every day, and they're claiming the leadership. They are leading in percentages of adults. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that was what I was going to talk about, was that if you look at the CDC website, they actually have a nice map where you can just everything's color coded. Mm-hmm. And the darkest part, you know, the darkest blue part of the country is in uh, New England, Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire, Maine, etc., where the total number of shots. Remember, people get two shots. The total number of shots is greater now than the number of people. So they're 
they're actually like per hundred thousand people, they've delivered per, over a hundred thousand doses now per hundred thousand people. Pennsylvania just got above that number. Um, and so absolutely. Um, well, there's no question the number of continued cases and deaths is going to be related to the vaccination percentages in those regions. There's no reason why. I'm not saying it's a 100% correlation, but areas that have a higher vaccination rate, given the effectiveness of the vaccine, are going to have a lower number of cases and a lower number of deaths. In other words, that is going to be the dominant effect. So when we talk about heterogeneity, there is heterogeneity, heterogeneity in weather, there's heterogeneity in, you know, let's call it the distance people have between each other and social practices. But at this point, the dominant effect has to be the vaccination rate. It just has well, to be. Well, well no. I, Eric, I think you're overstating it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, weather, weather alone, remember this spring, we saw these, we saw these big changes that seemed to be related um, to, to, to climate. So we saw the South and the, and the West moved much more than the Midwest. And I don't know that anyone ever did the study, but it looks so tightly connected to who was outside. So now once we hit summer and maybe everybody's outside, I can imagine that that factor matters less, but I, I would push back a little bit on the certainty you're giving to the vaccine. And Shane, I'm sorry that I jumped in. No, no. And I mean, I, you know, like let, let's say every state event does eventually get over whatever, you know, this kind of, threshold for kind of herd immunity that maybe we're kind of hitting in some of these states already, you know, at at that point, it does not, you know, again, if if say, for example, we get mostly herd immunity at like at the 55% range or 60% range, you know, is there going to be much of a correlation between the states that get to 75% versus 95%? I, so this is my this is my belief, and and Adi, you could tell me if I'm wrong. So I've always studied these models. Like I, I always told you that I, I thought there was going to be a group of people that wouldn't get vaccinated no matter what. Let's call those the never vaxxers. We study this in marketing. There's never buyers. You can give it to them at a very low price. You can market to them heavily. They're just not going to buy the product. I think there's a lower asymptote here. I think even when people talk about herd immunity, I think what that I don't think that means it's going to zero. I think that means there will still be cases in local regions. There will still be deaths in local regions. Because, And I think people are misinterpreting statistically what herd immunity means. And so do you, agree, do you disagree with that, Adi? Do you think there's a lower asymptote to the herd immunity? Like if 100% of the people were vaccinated, I think we would agree in a particular region the case, the number of cases could eventually go to zero. The number of deaths could go to zero, et cetera. But without that, herd immunity doesn't drive it to zero. There's a lower asymptote. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think there is. A, is I think you, you could see a kind of a low bubble in places that have a substantial population that homogeneously are not getting back vaccinated. The, it, the thing which which goes against that being a real problem is that you have to recognize that having the illness is as good as having a vaccine. That seems to be generally regarded as the truth, um, that if you had the illness already, you were pretty well covered. So in these locations where the vaccine rate might be only 30, 40 percent. Well, can we break you, that look, down, Adi? Because that's sure. I've heard something counter to that. So I just want to break that oh, down. So I, let I, me, well, let me just break it down into its components. Um, we don't know. The, what I've heard, and tell me if you've heard something different, is that the length of time of protection for someone who's had the uh, coronavirus versus the vaccine, those may be different. Um, I've heard cons- that's number one. 
Let's take them piece by piece. Do you agree that the amount of time of immunity could be quite different for someone that's had COVID versus someone that's been doubly vaccinated? I'm just going to have to plead that I don't know. I mean, that's too much biology for me. I, the, what I read is that the that people who have had the vaccine, the virus, the, it stays in their bone marrow. That's it, what I've heard. I've read that as well. Um, and it and we and the and it's the same process. But don't be don't if you're thinking that the getting the disease is different than the vaccine, it really isn't. Not the mRNA one because all it's doing, all the mRNA is doing, is creating the spike protein just without the virus, and then letting your body do the rest of the work. So everything should be really quite similar, and that's that would be my except. My I agree. The length could be different. Um, what what I've also heard, and maybe this is not true. Let's imagine you had a coronavirus variant. Oh, I don't even remember what the names are. B, whatever. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden a new variant comes along. So is it not possible that the vaccine provides greater, broader spectrum protection than someone who's had the coronavirus of a specific type? Uh, yeah, I would agree. And I think I even can elaborate why that is. Um, and it's basically that your, your immune system is really fundamentally and fabulously complicated and interesting th- uh, system. And what it does is, is it, it finds antibodies and they morph around and, and adapt to the proteins on the virus to block it from functioning. Um, the, your body might end up doing something particular to the variant that it's exposed to. They all have the spike protein. They all do. Every variant. That's why this thing is so damn deadly, because that spike protein latches on. And without it, it's just not a relevant uh, a virus to be concerned about. So the vaccine is targets the spike program. That's all there is. The vaccine only creates uh, the spike protein. So maybe that's the reason why the vaccine might be, in the long run, just the best and most efficient way to, to keep it from ever coming back. And maybe having had it, there might just be too much variance among the viruses to, to, uh, to offer that long-term protection. But I'm just spitballing because I've read a lot, well, but I'm no biologist. <laughs> I'll, sp- I'll spit farther further with the statistical <laughs> argument that, you know, has no immunological immunological backing at all what if you know i mean the 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 vaccines were designed against kind of the original version of covid right and as covid has mutated you can think of that original version as the mean of a whole distribution of covid now and as covid has mutated we're kind of getting more extreme versions away from that mean so the vaccine's kind of targeting again sort of the mean of this you know thing and so it's probably essentially going to be you can kind of think of it as almost like targeting the consensus COVID across the whole population. And so it's not going to necessarily be, you know, as resistant to like kind of these more extreme variants that are popping up, but it will be more resistant to more types of variants. Yeah. What's also also interesting at us at a state level is that um, I think most states now I'm trying to find something current on this, for example, have an R less than one now. Many, many states now have an R less than one. And now the question is, I mean, I know it's just math because R has a specific meaning in terms of its decay rate. How long will it take for it to get to, as as, uh, Cade started us off with, we're not at the Israeli zero. We're still at the Israel. We're still at the U.S. 10,000 plus a day. And we're still last time I checked, maybe it's changed still at four to five hundred deaths per day. Yes, we are about that. Right. And, and one of the concerns is that there are these variants that are causing trouble. So David Leonard out of the New York Times reported just a day or two ago that the Delta variant, which is the name for the one most recently identified in India, has caused an overall tick up in cases in England, despite England having had such a good go so far with the vaccine. You know, they're far ahead of Europe. They were more aggressive. 
Um, they've had to be more aggressive with the shutdowns. They really pushed it down. And from a very low base, they're back on the upward trend because the Delta variant is so contagious. And so we're just so we're just not out of the woods because they fully expect that thing to continue around the globe. And we have these pockets of relatively low vaccination rates that are going to be more vulnerable. Now, one one addition that that Leonard put in that article is something we've mentioned on the show. Because the elderly have been vaccinated at such a higher rate. And because oh, wait, it, the el- it's shocking. I just looked at the number this morning. It's something like 86.5% of people above 65 and above have now been 86.5%. Hey, Eric, incentives, man, incentives. These people are the one who have the greatest incentive to take it. And there turns out they go out and get it. So that's going to drive down the mortality of this thing because the elderly contribute vastly disproportionately to the deaths of this thing. So, so we're not saying the Delta variant is going to contribute greatly to deaths, but it's so much more contagious that when we have these pockets of unvaccinated, then we may have another uptake, which is pretty sobering. Cause remember guys back at the beginning of the year, we, we started this downward trend and we're like, do you think we'll ever see an upward trend again in the U S and we're like, well, maybe and we saw a little one, but the vaccines caught up with it. It was been continued on down. It's sobering to think that we could go up again. Adi. Uh, so my reaction to that is all, all that's true, but that's that's just what I'm concerned about is there being an up t- uptick that's not fundamentally dangerous that ends up bringing back a lot of uh, okay. restrictions that I, that I, that I potentially think are not going to be counterproductive. So and why do I think that? Well, two reasons. Uh, first of all, there is bre- vaccine breakthrough, and if there's pockets of communities unvaccinated where the where new variants in particular are kind of bouncing around, that means more opportunity for people like us to get exposed. We could end up getting a, a positive case, which is measured either through a mild case or or, or testing, which which tends to get people scared. It does seem to be the data is overwhelming that the vaccine not only prevents 19 out of 20 um, cuts the the exposure. Uh, if you are exposed, the probability of getting the, the disease is, is about uh, 5% of what it would be ordinarily. But even when you do get it, you do seem to get a much more milder case. So uh, my, my concern is that we end up getting a little bit too uh, you know, quick on that trigger finger just because we have cases. And the reason why I, the reason why I talk about this, I'll bring up David. So, Lee, you would go farther than that, though, and say, look, if the, you've always been a little bit on the let's, let's, let's keep it in perspective, especially for younger people. Yes, it's not that much worse than getting the flu. In fact, at the very young age, it's better than getting the flu. Just to be clear, Adi, right now, just using the average numbers you've described, um, if if let's just say we stay for the next two years at 500 deaths per day due to covid, I'm not saying we are. I said if we are, that's probably three to five times the number of deaths that we have for flu. In other words, if 180,000 U.S. people die every year due to coronavirus, which 500 times 360 is 180,000, that would be three to five times the historical average of flu deaths, which many people would say that's still not good and something may need to be done about it. Well, I'm going to, I guess, react to, I would ask you to slow down a little bit. I watched, I I tracked Israel so closely. (laughs) The deaths just linger. 
um, because a lot of the the they just take a long time. We're actually pretty good at keeping people alive a lot longer. Yeah, right. Good or for ill, um, they they will just eventually slow down because you're just going to clean out the, those sitting in ICUs. Um, also, there's a lot of it's still a lot of elderly people who are still suffering, and they take can take a long time. Um, but I just want to just finish about talking about the young. Um, so David Leonard had a whole had a tweet storm. I, I learned that 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 those two words go together, um, and uh, he actually talked about. Out, um, a great, great overestimation of the of the number of of the rate of hospitalization among teenagers, um, mostly because of a miscalculation. Miscal- Anytime someone goes in, say with with to for a broken bone, if they test positive, they write them as hospitalized with COVID, not hospitalized for COVID, but hospitalized with COVID, and that has led to. So Why? We did a nice. That, yes, it seems to be the case that if you test positive, you get automatically get tested when you go into the hospital for whatever reason. Everybody. Oh, I see. If they if they have a positive test, I see. Yeah. And so if you test positive, which which actually happens quite frequently, particularly it can linger in your body for some time, and the kids don't tend to so show symptoms. Um, so he pointed out that he doesn't think that that uh, that there's been an, there's been an overstatement of the hospitalization rates among teens, and the reason why I think that matters is the only group. Really, the only group who seems to be still operating under some strictures are the kids. And camp is coming up, and, and my kids are not at camp, but I've been talking to parents whose kids are going to camp, and they're still under the guidelines of you know two weeks of quarantining and social distancing and masks and the things that we have essentially jettisoned in our lives, we're still enforcing on our children. Adi, just tell them to send their kids to camp in Texas. It'll all be fine. <laughs> I'll be very interested. My our, our youngest son is going to uh, an academic enrichment program in California. I'll be very interested to see. I know their plan. If you had asked me a month ago, it was you know hundred percent masks, et cetera, et cetera. I actually don't know what the plan is now, and I'm interested to find out as well. But I think Adi, as you pointed out, uh, for a long time, again, uh, this is thought of as the remaining high spreader population, mm-hmm. and so the prevented the preventing these individuals, kids, the say 12 to 18 range, although as we now know, you can get the vaccine at 12 to 15 now, mm-hmm. um, and they are not as high a rate as the 65 plusers, but it's actually, they're going to be a, a population that if they got vaccinated, it's going to prevent deaths, but not of that age group of other age groups. Yeah, but I don't see how that extends to a sleepaway camp experience where they all are with each other and basically nobody else. Um, but I will, I'll just finish with two observations, which are really good news. One is... Uh, so hold on, Adi, before you, yeah. before you change the topic, I just want yeah. to... Your, your main point was, yeah, 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 we're going to see more cases if we get these variants over here, and we probably will. But they're probably going to be mild consequentially. And so let's not overreact with a bunch of um, new restrictions. Um, yeah, new restrictions. And that's you've 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 been a voice for balance from pretty early on. And I think that's a reasonable that certainly seems reasonable now, especially in the face of the threat of some contagious variants. Yes. Now, if my wife were overhearing, she'd say I was also chicken shit for six months and never left the house. <laughs> <laughs> but then you decided you needed a pep talk and it works so well. You want to give other yeah, people I did, I did, you know, yeah, Personally risk adverse, but societally risk tolerant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's real, real generous of you. Adam. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell a quick story. I went to Trader Joe's here in Ardmore and uh, I didn't have a mask in the car. I just, I came from the gym and I didn't have a mask in and I, I asked the guy, do I need a mask to enter? He says, no. And interestingly enough, I was the only one in the store without one. 
And I thought that was an interesting observation of society's norms. Um, but I will to, I'll do two observations. One is my son, the bluegrass musician, has a four-day bluegrass festival in Pennsylvania. So they're back. I think that this is huge. Live music. Live music, live music is back. It is outdoors, of course, on the main stage. But indoors, Bruce Springsteen, back on Broadway, in the, first, the first act, June 26th. What so is really? the what's the requirement? Uh, any capacity restrictions? I, that that I don't know, but all I know is Bruce Spring, the boss is back, and that's big. News. I, but Adi, you're also <laughs> saying there's a Broadway theater open for some reason. Yes. I thought they were waiting until fall for the big reopening on Broadway. Well, they gotta, you know, they gotta get there. They gotta practice. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's. Ready I see. To go, so presumably. Bruce could just walk out. <laughs> Got it. Good for the theater update. Thank you. Um, listen, there was this other piece on the FT about vulnerable populations might need a booster even this year. Did you guys see this? Yes. So we talked about boosters off and on. There haven't been, it's really just been speculation to this point. And I think this is one of the first studies that say for especially vulnerable populations, it seems likely you will need a booster. Any, anything else around that? Well, what I, what I, I read a very interesting thing. It relates to that, this vulnerable population, but I didn't realize there were 3 million people in the U.S., it's about 1% of the U.S. population, um, that take immunosuppressants. And I hadn't even thought about the possibility until I read this article that if you take an immunosuppressant, the vaccine may not work because that's exactly what the vaccine is doing. It's exciting, as, as Adi said, activating your immune system. And so mm-hmm. I didn't realize that this was one of the populations that might have to get, matter of fact, they may have to be over-vaccinated, in, if you'd mm-hmm. like, in some sense. And they may require, and also even then just timing-wise, uh, Cade, you know, if the first people start getting vaccines in December, January, if, the, you know, we're probably no more than four to five months away from, you know, we may be recycling through people early on that got the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, just can you remind us what populations require immunosuppressants? So I, I would imagine that uh, people with I, I actually it's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer about which pop I can look that up. But I would like imagine tran- transplants, uh, maybe well, certainly some- anything with an autoimmune disease. Right. So anywhere anywhere where your own body attacks your your immune system because it can't has a hard time telling the difference okay. between, between ah. foreign and and that causes okay. you to take suppressants so you don't so obviously transplants um, but they're much much broader than that yeah uh, I figured it was broader than that I just wanted a little reminder one I mean, um, percent of the population is a is a lot I mean three million people yeah. in the U S is a lot um, but, uh, but actually but, it's very interesting by the way just just something I, I just looked it up right here what's interesting and I, I wouldn't have guessed this. People with autoimmune disorders apparently do not have a higher chance of contracting COVID, but they have a higher chance, obviously, of having severe complications if they are to catch it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. You know, right. so one of the just to quickly, you know, one of the things that, that's still on the table, and in fact, Penn is a, is a leader in this department, in this area, is actually tracking what drugs are available to treat the illness. I mean, in the United States, it seems to be going down, but there's still huge parts of the world that are struggling. Um, and there are much better uh, options for, for people who do get sick today. Um, the antibody treatments are much more widely available. There's some really interesting drugs that are out there. Some are still being studied intensely. The fluoxetine, the, the, the drug. I think that's uh, a great point, Adi. Um, I think, I hope, I hope the next battleground is actually on therapeutics. Yep. And um, I think for good reason, we talked about this by six, eight, nine months ago, um, it was right that that went to the wayside temporarily while the vaccines were being developed. But I think we're now at the realm where 
I've seen no evidence to suggest that the vaccines we have won't last or be good for another at least couple of years. I agree with you. I think therapeutics is where a lot of the effort should go now. Shouldn't we see some kind of review out of the medical community? Because these guys like to develop these best practices and they'll, someone's going to cobble together the learnings. Lots of people will, I'm sure, and, and develop a systematic program for treating coronavirus, presumably. It'd be interesting to see what people consider to be best practice. Yeah, well, we're going to see it. I know that the group at Penn, which is run by uh, David Fagenbaum, who we actually had on our show back in the very beginning, is essentially about drug repurposing. And so what, and that's really what it's about. There aren't been any, except for the antibodies, the monoclonal antibodies, it's really just taking the existing approved drugs and mm-hmm. repurposing for other, other purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a lot of time because you got to do these clinical trials and drugs that are out of patent, as opposed to, say, remdesivir, those they don't have backers, right? So who's going to pay for it? Um, mm-hmm. So this it's all about you know wading through the enormous amount of small studies and accumulating the data and then deciding what to do with it. And it's somewhat controversial. Maybe we'll talk about it at a future show. I wonder how much of that the repurposing happened. Even it, maybe it happened in places where there weren't the regulatory restrictions, or maybe it happened in places where the crisis was just so severe enough that they had to try things or willing to try anything just the mother just, being the, nece- the invention of, of the necessity being the mother of invention maybe just one last topic on covid before we leave the topic for the day is um one of the things i've also been reading about is that they're trying to develop um you know pills and oral versions of it and so i i would not be surprised if sometime in i'm making this up 2022 that um we could actually instead of having to get a shot we're actually able to take a pill or an oral version of the actual uh, vaccine. And I think that would, I, I have to believe that that would increase the vaccination rate. Right. I mean, for one, I mean, some people don't want shots, but more importantly, the convenience of going, giving, just giving, taking a pill as opposed to going. Yeah, the ease of distribution would be right. so, so much higher. That would be amazing. Good. All right, guys. First quarter in the books. We still have three quarters to go. Come you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. Open mics up for any conversation you guys have. You listeners can jump in and join us if you'd like. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle there at WMoneyball. Great way to send a question our way, a suggestion, a criticism, observation, whatever you got at WMoneyball is the best way to reach out. You can also send us email. It is our mailbag. We collect whatever you send us. We look at everything. We read everything. We share everything. And sometimes we break it out online, break it out on air, I should say. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Again, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love to hear from you guys, however you want to reach out to us. Gentlemen, lots going on in sports right now. We, th- I, you know, I tend to think of summer as slow sports world, but it is not slow right now. There's stuff happening in every corner. I want to start out with a COVID-related sports story coming out of our COVID segment. John Rahm leading Memorial, which is, I don't know, Eric, you talk about these these tennis tournaments and they have tiers, you know, there's the oh, majors and there's oh, the yeah, next yeah. Yeah. Memorial would be in the first tier after the majors if we had such tiers in golf. And Rahm was leading something six strokes, I think. Yeah, he was up by six. Round, and he gets pulled off the course because of a positive COVID test. Pretty devastating. There's, you know, 
all of us are like, come on, Ram, why didn't you get vaccinated? Of course, that's hard not to have that reaction. Anything else? And I think we saw that Rufus got a bad beat there. I think Rufus might have had Rom to win that tournament. So not not a, that, that's a that's a hard way to lose a bet. Anything else out of that story that caught your eye? Well, I mean, a couple things emerged from it. One is, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd say I don't want probably ninety five percent chance he wins that tournament up six. That's, I mean, he's the number three player in the world. He's playing extraordinarily well, so he he was going to win that tournament. Um, now, of course, instead, Patrick Cantlay beat Colin Morikawa in a um, extra holes in a right. play in extra holes to win mm-hmm. the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has implications because. Forget about for Rom. Well, let's talk about Rom for a second. So first, he doesn't win that tournament. He now has to quarantine for two weeks. Let's assume he can play in the U.S. Open. Maybe he would have been the favorite to win the U.S. Open uh, had he won this tournament. But now he can't pick up. I mean, he he has to quarantine. So he's not playing. This could it'll be very interesting to see the impact this has on his next six months of play. I don't mean his future because he was asymptomatic, by the way. The guy felt entirely fine. But could this. I mean, he's never won a major. Could this put him back a couple of years in his quest for a major? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, very heck, possible. I mean, if it's a two-week quarantine strictly enforced, then he can't play the U.S. Open because he went out on I Saturday. I think it's technically – Do they have, do they have something like in football where days. you can come back after a negative test or something like that? It's 10 days, uh, Shane. Okay. So, so okay. I think technically he'll make the week from Thursday cutoff. <laughs> no practice rounds. No practice rounds. Hope, he might hope have you no, know Tory. Hope right. you know Tory, John. Would he, would he not? I mean, you know, he wouldn't be able to uh, play in isolation, practice in isolation. I guess he could do that. No I guess gonna, it's possible. No gonna, yeah, no one's going to possible. He may not be able to play practice rounds at Torrey Pines, but he can. Absolutely well, right. Of course, that would not definitely not be isolated. Dan, yeah. I assume he's been even had like a second positive test to even confirm, because I, I, I kind of feel like that would be the other, you know, disaster if they pulled him off the course. Oh, yeah, right. Surely they right? surely they had a split something, something before they did that. But I wonder how many professional golfers don't have the vaccination. And I wonder if this yeah. changes it. It's just absurd. With those kinds of consequences, it's just absolutely. Well, look at the professional baseball players are still getting on going on the COVID list is, is mind blowing. Yeah, oh, yeah, a hundred percent. Well, the NBA, I think you know, I, I think we saw in the NBA that they were, um, you know, tying the protocols to having just eighty five percent of the players and staff being vaccinated, and the Lakers, like literally a day before the end of the season, reached it. They were like the twenty third team to actually reach it, and so. You know, there. As you're right, Kate. It's about you. We just talked about this about the the consequences. You know, we said the elderly get vaccinated. If you're a professional athlete and you're heading into the playoffs of your given sport, <laughs> the incentive be, is so high. The incentive is so high; it makes no sense. So, just to be clear, the reason why it's so important is that if you're vaccinated and you're exposed, like Rom was, he didn't actually test positive. I'm correct. I thought he was just exposed to a known. No, no, no. He actually tested positive. We Besides actually- the fact he was on the contact tracing list because yeah. he had been exposed to someone that tested positive and then he tested positive right because it because the uh there was i, I think it may have been the yankees no no was it there was there was a baseball team it may, it may have been the yankees where there were about eight eight uh players i think it was maybe it was glaber Torres as well that had breakthrough cases correct that was the yankees um really breakthrough cases and those were exposures to non-vaccinated people who had the that who had who had covid nobody had any symptoms so it's only what are the uh, chances of that may breakthrough? Well, it was a J. Well, that's the problem. It, it was a J and J vaccine, which has a one dose, and it, who knows how long it takes to really, you know, kick, kick in. in. 
Uh, maybe it takes six, six, seven weeks before it really kicks in. Um, and knowing what got sick, its effectiveness from preventing positive cases is much lower than Pfizer, although it's reputed to be just as effective as keeping But you- that's the idea. As you know, this was spun. I don't think this is a bad spin. It's an accurate spin. Vaccine works. Just sure. like they said, exactly. right. a bunch of people got asymptomatic cases, but no one got sick. And that's it. No one got hospitalized. Although, no one got it worked. It did seem like that's a rather large clump. Right. I think that was that's the point. Yeah, Eight that's, in one group. Right. So. So, I mean, weird. that seems I don't think that would have happened with the Pfizer. I'm not sure I'm maybe reading more into it. But if you're asking, you know, this is obviously their incentive for a professional athlete not to get benched because they either are positive or exposed. But they also look at it a little bit differently. Certainly they don't see it as a risk to their body. Um, they see the vaccine, whether this is right or wrong, and I would argue wrong. Um, many people, particularly the Moderna vaccine, they do get two days of pretty solid sickness. If you're a professional mm-hmm. athlete, you may just not want that and, mm-hmm. and probably way more incentivized than you guys are and I am to be to a couple days of pretty bad. In some cases, pretty, pretty, pretty horrifying, not horrifying. Yeah, right. right, right. Um, but there's all kinds of rampant stories out there which are just too hard to beat down. I mean, they're everywhere. And I'm sure, you know, we all know people who have them. I mean, I, I've, I've been just astounded. At before the we leave, that, by the way, before we leave golf, because <laughs> we start out with John Rahm and golf, before we leave golf, um, what was also fascinating was right after the memorial ended, it then went to, for those people that don't know, um, U.S. Open qualifying. So that's the one thing yeah. about the U.S. The Open. next day. The next day, literally the next day, and there were 55 roughly open spots. So I think there's going to be 150-something players in the U.S. Open. 100 spots were guaranteed. These are by the top 70 players in the world or 60 players in the world, tournament winners, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But like Ricky Fowler, as an example, um, actually turns out he did not qualify for the U.S. Open. He missed by one stroke uh, making a playoff. There are lots of (sighs) golfers you know well that that are not playing in the u.s open eric i i, I that I, for some reason i saw the fowler thing as well and it, and just reading into it a little bit because they play 36 holes in one day and they play in sites around the country and they don't right. even know how many from each side are going to advance it's, it's this and all these guys you know are out there and they're mixing it up with a with a bunch of guys that nobody knows it's utterly fascinating and i don't think there's enough coverage of it i think it's a really neat thing that happens in sport and there's not enough coverage. There must have been some cool stuff sometime, but I haven't seen anything in a long time. Yeah, no, I, I think it's one of the great democratic parts of the yes. game of golf, which yes. is um, lots of people. I mean, some people don't go directly to the final qualifying. Some people literally have to work their way up from right. regional qualifying totally. to, like, to sectional, et cetera. But I mean, if you're a golf professional, you can try to go through sectional qualifying. Look, I think, Matter of fact, I know he did. Tony Romo played in a low-level yeah. sectional qualifying. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Tony I made it uh, fairly far, right? No, 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 not this year. No, one no, year but, but that, that one year or whatever. One year, not this year. This year yeah. he didn't make it out of sectional yeah. qualifying. But again, um, if you're a professional golfer, you can try to make the U.S. Open. And there's not zero. I mean, there are a few professional golfers that you know make the U.S. Open that are not touring pros is the way to describe it and they make it it's wonderful it is fun um so we should we should get that qualifiers list because it was just yesterday i think 36 hours yesterday and find out who there will be some names on that list that'll be that you won't that you'll see in the u.s open and you won't know came through qualifying because they're household names what else around the world of sports i saw a piece in the last couple of days that says uh evidence is in now yankees are in trouble what what is that? Do y'all buy that? And what is that about? 
Yeah, I mean, I. I know, you, no, Shane. Shane, go you ahead. Gotta let okay. we're we're suffering okay. here. You're you're enjoying yourself, <laughs> and I, I don't. Uh, so the the Red Sox swept the Yankees, and and the and Tampa Bay took two out of three in the series before that. And more importantly, the Yankees just look anemic. Um, they right. just, they just can't hit. They can't. They get thrown out on the bases. They 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 don't put runners on, and they don't hit the ball out of the park. And they play in the the park with the shortest right field porch by miles, and they have no left handed hitters. So, you know, everything just seems just foolishly and stupid. Yeah, aren't they responsible for – they know their stadium dimensions and they built that team and they don't have any left-handed hitters? I I don't understand very much of what is actually (laughs) happening. I know, but but Adi, I mean, before we look at – I agree with you. Things don't look good, but let's just look at the positive in baseball. As I remember, they're still extending the number of teams that make the play-in round by one from last year, right? So it's now, you know, seven teams instead of six. Um, there's the Yankees are still over 500. So I understand they're six or seven in back in the loss column from the division, but they don't have to win the division. They no. could make one of these play in games, which they're maybe two games out of. So let's not make, I look, this is not over. It just, no, no, I wish, plus wait, as, you would really love to have the under whatever it was, 97, 98 wins or whatever the projection was. And if you're a Red Sox fan like Shane, you'd much, you'd be thrilled to have the whatever it was, 82 and a half or whatever number they had for the Red Sox. You know, that number's looking, you know, to me, the Red Sox and the Giants are the two big surprises this year. Everyone thought the Dodgers were going to be good, and they are. I understand they're in third place in their division, but they're still playing over 600 well, balls. San Diego is expected San to be San Diego, strong. everyone thought was going to be good. Maybe not this good. But the Giants and the Red Sox are the two teams that were thought of as mid-level teams who are playing, at least at the moment, well above 600 pace. Well, let me give you a Fangraphs number. So Fangraphs projections for the full season, they have the Red Sox third highest win total in the league at 93 right now, for example. So that's if if 82 was the preseason number, that's some significant overperformance. Are they predicting anybody for 100 at this point? No. In fact, they keep on dropping. I, I'm looking at this most weeks, and I think it was 96 last week. It's down to 95 for the Dodgers and 94 for the Padres right now. Yeah, if I was a Yankees fan, I would be, you know, obviously disconcerted and disappointed with how they've done so far this season. But I do think some of this is just based on kind of bad luck and and kind of like injury type stuff. And again, like you could say that that some of that injury bad luck is partly roster construction as well. They do have four or five regular players that on any other team would be the DH, but you can only DH one of them um, on the Yankees. And that's what is leading to a lot of injuries and also terrible defense. It must be, I'm sure it is very frustrating to watch that kind of uh, the, the defense that they've been putting forth. You know, and, it, 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 I think they will turn around. I, I, if, if you, if I, if I was a betting man, I would say that I would still give them about 50% to make one of those seven kind of play in slots. I would too, but it's very frustrating, particular when you see the shift in the game. And we're going to talk about this later um, with Stephanie, I'm sure who's written this fabulous article about the scuffing of the baseball. But the scuffing of the baseball, the extreme velocity, the intense, the new approach to hitting home runs with a ball that doesn't travel as far has created a very different looking game this year. And it just seems to disadvantage the Yankees as opposed to, say, the Red Sox and the Rays, which are more versatile, athletic, um, faster. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Yankees' ability to, the, the inability to manufacture runs in situations oh. where they are 
pitch facing these kind of lights out uh, pitching it, it, it that's a real thing and I mean I think Tom Verducci had that interesting article on SI where he looked at like you know the Yankees are the worst in baseball at hitting to the opposite you know field mm-hmm. you know and, and and some of these other kind of oh, like the worst in baseball a lot things. of things but one of the things <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hypothesizing is is that the uh, there's this incredible use of analytics with pitchers to really refine what they do and to track how the ball moves and how fast they're throwing. Yep, yep. And, and when we, in, we interviewed um, uh, Greg uh, Fertig, I think his last name was, uh, who does all this mechanics, one of the things that they've learned is how to teach a pitcher to yep. throw with great, great consistency. This means that they're just right around the plate all the time. There's none of this kind of like wildness. That, I mean, it used to be so fabulous. I mean, it, it's working for the Yankees. Their pitchers look terrific. I can't complain. I mean, you know, and, you know, Araldis Chapman is still throwing 102 and, and isn't barely walking anyone. It's, it's just remarkable what the bullpens are doing all around, but it's just suppressing hitting. And and the Yankees just seem to be the short end of that stick. Well, a couple couple quick thoughts on that. One, you, like you said, we've got this Stephanie Epstein interview at the end of the show. And in the piece that she did, she co-authored an SI, they talk about, well, the single best way to improve pitching is to teach them how to use some substance. So we used to laud the Astros for their developmental, you know, they take a guy who's kind of at the end of his career, they bring him, they they coach him up, man. They're good for this development stuff. And maybe it wasn't all you know, on the up and up shocking from the Astros. Yeah. We gave the Astros such a hard time for trying to give their hitters an advantage as well here. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I want to say, it just strikes me. It's kind of, there's an evolutionary uh, analog to the Yankees here. The Yankees were built for a particular environment, a particular type of game. And then the game has shifted on them a little bit. Mm -hmm. They weren't built in this robust way. It was, they were so loaded up on one particular type of game. I hadn't, I didn't know that out. I think it's terrifically interesting. I'm sorry that it's sad for you guys, but I do think it's. Well, you know, so one of the things that also is fascinating about baseball is that the individual teams are developing this and not every team is as good at developing it as every other. So here's an observation that was pointed out to me, Jake Cousins. Now, why is that a name that's familiar to you, Cade? He is the, I believe the Cousins. Kurt Cousins. But he should be familiar to all of us. He was a star pen baseball player. Um, and he was drafted by the Nationals. And with the Nationals, his miles per hour averaged around 90. Now, so real quickly, do you know when he was drafted? When is a pen baseball player drafted in, in Major League Baseball? Uh, generally not that high. but right. uh, And the saying goes on forever. They have Yeah, they there's have 40 rounds of the draft. Godly number of picks. Is it only 40? I thought it was longer than that. 42? I mean, uh, do you know? This is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just going to kind of make an anecdotal sort of statement here. Another thing that may disadvantage the Yankees is, you know, if maybe we're in a situation, analytics with analytics and technological development and all this kind of like new new stuff that maybe the kind of this equilibrium of pitching versus hitting, maybe it's kind of speeding up in terms of the a- adaptation. And, oh, teams, and 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 so maybe teams like the Yankees that also I mean, the other thing about the Yankees is they are one of the teams that still hides out these giant long term contracts. Right. Prevents um, them from from does that. Does that even are, are, are teams that sort of are a little bit older and like have these giant contracts? Does that kind of prevent them from sort of turning over their roster as these adaptations kind of work their way through baseball? Could be. But the point I was going to make about uh, Jay Cousins is with the Nationals, he is he averaged around 90 miles per hour. He switched to the Brewers, who were famous or at least known in baseball circuits for really working with their pitchers to increase their velocity. Now he's throwing 95.6. Jeez, that's amazing. You just wouldn't think that a guy that's yeah, that's remarkable. And grad. What's the story? This is like (laughs) that kind of velocity from an Ivy leaguer. 
that just does you don't see that very often. I still right. think in in many cases though this is you know a hard time you're given the NHL is going on obviously deep mid- midway through the playoffs now you know obviously the NBA's deep into the playoffs now we have the French Open tennis going now we have golf and soon to be the US Open going on it's it's hard to we even have you know uh, uh you know, mini camps and football going on now. It's hard to really get excited about baseball right now. And <laughs> and it's and, uh, no, it is. It just it's it's and also I don't know um, if your team had just swept your hated rivals over the weekend, you would <laughs> you'd be a lot more excited question, right now. Right, so let me ask you a question. Let and everyone here give a prediction, and we'll record these. If the season ended now, we could write down the fourteen teams that would be in the playoffs. It's a deterministic function. How many of the 14 teams currently in the playoffs are going to be there at the end of the season? What's your number? It's just a what, number between 0 and 14. How many games have we played so far? Roughly 60. So there's roughly 102 games left. Roughly, I think we're in the 60 range. Okay, everyone come up with a number. I have to look at the, I don't, I'm not going to look at the standings. So I just yeah, no, it's not a standings kind of number. It's just a regression to the mean kind of volatility number. It's interesting. All right, I got mine. I've got mine as well. I'm, I've got one. I got. I think I need to go a notch lower. Okay, I, I've got a number. Shane, what do you got? Nine. Nine out of fourteen. I was on nine. I, I dropped down to eight. Yeah, Eric, I was I, at ten and I dropped down to nine. I, I'm going <laughs> to stay. I'm going to stay at ten. Okay, so I, I I was at nine and I dropped down to eight at the last second. So nine, mm-hmm. yeah, we're all kind of in the rough ball, ballpark, I guess. Well, it's, it's a why. third of the teams who've done a third of the season. You know? Well, no, no, no. But here's another way to two think. thirds of the ones who are who are in it right now. Basically. I was thinking Most about it a different way. There's probably of those fourteen, there's probably six or seven of them that. If the if two three games went another way, it could flip. So yeah. those half can't be more than about fifty. I mean, anything more than about eleven, right. it mustn't make any sense at yeah, all right. for that that's reason right. in itself. Mm-hmm. And then there's an assumption that these other ten, other you know, eight teams, some fraction of them, maybe six or seven. That's why you're in this knife edge between eight and ten somewhere. Seems very right. plausible. Guys, on baseball front, there was a really cool article in the New York Times. I've been New York Times Magazine on Mike Schmidt a couple of days ago. And the, the headline was something like the, the greatest draft pick ever. And it was a, it was an analytics piece in that they just looked at career war to the drafting team. And Mike Schmidt is the leader on that. According to, you know, do you have to tell me whether we have the right variety of war or not? I don't know, but Mike Schmidt has 106.9 career war for the Phillies. And it's, it's the most by a lot. So the next guy down is Cal Ripken Jr. at like mid-90s. Below that is George Brett, Albert Pujols. We have one active guy that's sneaking up there, predictably, you know, that's Mike Trout. He's in the high 70s already. But so this I, is war accumulated by the team that drafted. By the drafting team. So it's just like, you know, and he was a second, he was a second round pick, and they're not norming it for first round versus fourth or anything. You're new. saying all time, Cade, these are the numbers? All time. All how time. is someone like Mickey Mantle? Because he's not drafted. I mean, there was no draft at that. I mean, how, how does that work? Lou Gehrig? No, these uh, guys. There, there must mean, be I, a, it was probably the draft era. The draft, presumably. The draft era. Oh, okay. So, give, probably- so what do you think the career war was for those? Yeah, Lou Gehrig. What do you think the career war was for these all-timers you're talking about? Uh, the career war for someone like, you know, Mickey Mantle and Lou, Lou Gehrig are in the low hundreds. They're around, uh, around the around – Yeah, I mean, the, Babe Ruth is all-time has the highest war, which is like, like 150 160, or 160. 170. 
if you add if he adds his pitching in there, then you yeah. certainly get that. Um, yeah. The the problem, of course, with I mean, WAR basically is a it's a is a hitting adjusted stat adjusted for a position that you're in. So that's yeah. why Mike Schmidt is so high because he did it two ways. He's a very good fielder, and he also is a uh, did it at third base. The fielding stuff is the stuff that is a lot of uh, just a lot of wishful thinking. So basically what they do is they look at the contemporary data and see uh, which is made with tracking or not exactly tracking, but, you know, ball kind of location specific measurements. And then they just kind of look at opportunities in the past. That's how, how do you how do you measure fielding success? Like how many plays did you make? And somehow that's a measure of how good you are. It's really not very hard to get right. And that can be dependent on a lot of external factors that are not necessarily out of your control. So when you go back in time and look at the hitters, you just sort of wonder a little bit about what you're doing with these infielders because they tend to, and sometimes the center fielders, that, that's kind of crude when they, when they measure it. Adi, I'm not, I didn't follow you all together, and I'd like to because you understand this. And so can you make that point a little more crisply? Can you tell us what it's going to get wrong or what it's going to wave its hands at when you're talking okay. about someone like Mike Schmidt, a third baseman from the, yeah, I mean, the so, 90s? You know, so a great season. I mean, so Mike Schmidt over his 20 seasons had 110 war, right? So getting five to six war on average is really impressive. About zero to two of those could be, per year, could be fielding. Mm -hmm. And that can accumulate a lot over a career. Mm -hmm. And that is a number that accounts for maybe one quarter of your war. But that could be something like 25 war, yeah. uh, wins over a career like Got it. Schmidt's. That's very, very, very uncertain how they put that together. It's hand wavy. It's hand wavy. Is what yeah, I mean, what do you have to go, at, go on in a box score, right? So you know how many plays were made, and they try to guess at how many plays were hit to you, and they do that by looking at the box score. Like how many mm -hmm. opportunities did you have? How many outs did you make? How many errors did you have? And they just mm -hmm. sort of guess at how valuable you were. But mm -hmm. a lot of that is sort of deferential. So I'll just throw out an anecdote. You know, Joe DiMaggio in center field, he waved everybody off. So many, many fly balls that are hit to center field-ish could be done by the right or left fielder, depending on who was there. He would get them because he was, he was Joe DiMaggio. So he has this tremendously huge numbers of, of putouts because that's just the way it was. Now, that's not going to happen with a, with a third baseman, but yeah. numbers of opportunities and numbers of putouts, all that stuff is is a little bit – and they, they – it's it, by the way, it's all – ultra top secret yeah and, and just just to yeah, kind of find out what it is <laughs> just just that's horrible back, back up what Audie's saying you know we, we studied fielding like 10 15 years ago and sort of found that a lot of the kind of current metrics at the time that were based on kind of measuring the number of hits to different zones of the field and stuff like that were really highly variable season to season because you know the the kind of number of opportunities were very highly variable and it just was not a very precise measure of somebody's fielding ability and okay. you know when you go back to mike schmidt that's the even previous technology beyond that where you're not even right. like looking at the zones they're hit, hit, hit no to. for sure not so, Adi, can you give us a sense? Um, you even just did the math. You just given how many years he played, which was a lot. He averaged about five war a season. Where would that be in the empirical distribution of war in a given season? Like, I don't think that number – it's high, obviously, but it's not that high. Like, was he – I'm making this up. Was he basically – I mean, we'd have to look at his distribution by year. But if he literally had five every year, which he didn't, but if he had five every year, he'd be like an 80th percentile player for 24 consecutive years, Right. I think no, it's higher like 90th than that. percentile. Yeah. 90th percentile. Like, uh, yeah. You know, of starters. All right. So if you're, I mean, that is, and is also at a third base. Uh, bottom line is, is that five, it, it has a funny, it has a long tail, right? So the best player in a season is probably around nine. 
right? Eight to nine. I mean, there's crazy years like Mantle or Ruth who have 14, 15, but excluding those are Bonds, right? Um, or Otani. You know, <laughs> Otani might make something out of that because of the, the two-sided aspect of it. Fun. But it, it, actually, it actually tails off pretty quickly. So it's probably... 90th five is 90th and doing that every single year he probably had a number of years of two or three i don't know what his look what it looks like and he, well, he had, a, had a bunch a, of eight or nines in there as well it's actually quite linear they have a nice graph in this picture in, in this article quite linear for a long time and then it tails off at the very end and in fact goes a little bit negative poor guy he looks like he stayed on the season too long mm-hmm. same with uh same with uh cal ripkin jr tips over a little bit george brett just stayed flat for like the last five years of his mm-hmm. career it's interesting to see the trajectory of these things all right gentlemen that has been two more quarters of wharton Moneyball. we have two quarters to go You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Open mic segment. We just lost Audie Weiner for the for the quarter. He's back for the interview. Got a Stephanie Stephanie Epstein interview coming up in quarter four on baseball. She had a terrific article in Sports Illustrated, co-authored on uh, the spin substance scandal in Major League Baseball. We've just talked about some baseball. There's some other sports going on. Basketball, for example, has advanced um, in playoffs since we last spoke. What is your take? I know, Bradlow, you're all about the NBA. What's going on over there these days? I'm sorry that the Mavs, I thought on the way in here today, I thought, you know, if this was only a five-game series, the Mavs would be in, not the Clippers. This is the, the NBA makes everything seven games. They're going to. They're just intent on advancing the best team regardless. Let's drive chance down to zero. And the Clippers made it through. What, what, what else you got, Eric? Well, I mean, of course, since we ended a week ago, I'm, I'm pretty sure the Lakers were eliminated in yeah, the last week. Right. I think when we recorded last, they certainly weren't out of it. And so, you know, two things. Let's just start with that series and we can move on to the Dallas uh, Clippers series and many other series. Um, Anthony Davis is crucial to that team's success. And LeBron James is still very, very good. But he's not the LeBron James when he was 25 where he can drag me, you, and Shane Jensen over the line. He's not that great anymore. And or he was injured. So even he was not 100% healthy LeBron James. And age takes its toll on everybody. He was still very good but he couldn't do it for 40 minutes and drag without Anthony Davis, this team over the line. And let me just say in respect to the Suns, it's not obvious after this series that even if Anthony Davis was healthy, that they would have beaten the Suns. I think the Suns are better than most of us thought they were. Mm-hmm. And, and they just have a tremendous backcourt with Devin Booker and Chris Paul and others mm-hmm. there. And you know, this guy, people criticized him because I forget who was picked second that year, but this Deon, Oh, maybe it was Doncic. But DeAndre Ayton is no bust. This guy's doing 2010 every game is a big bruising center. And I don't see guys trying to push this guy around. And so, you know, all right, so maybe he's not Luka Doncic. All right, you're right. You should have drafted Luka Doncic. But DeAndre Ayton, 20 and 10, no, no shame there. And so they're not going to be an easy out. So Erica, the, in the East, you know, we, we talked to Seth Partnow maybe two weeks ago, or was it just maybe it was last week? We talked to Seth last week. And he talked about, well, this, this round two game um, between the Bucks and the Nets might be basically a uh, NBA Finals-worthy 
series. Well, if it is, then I'm telling you right now, the Bucks <laughs> like are in real team. trouble. I mean, besides being down 2 nothing, as I'm sure you say, Harden's played a grand total of 43 seconds in that series. He hurt his yeah. hamstring. By yeah. the way, if I were the Nets, I wouldn't Just bring Harden back now. Sit him. They don't need him. They, they, yeah, they, they, they don't seem to need him at this point. At this point. But they've blown him out the first two games. And, um, you know, the Bucks can't shoot well enough. And, and the Nets are going to put up 120 points against everybody. So you better be able to score and score and score. And, this, and the, the, the Bucks just aren't built that way. Look, Giannis is a great player, but he's not a scorer. You know, you look at Chris Middleton, he's a good player, but he's not a great player. And you look at the guys on the Bucks; they're just not good enough. They're not good enough. And the Nets have built the team. Look, when you have to double-team Durant and Irving, and when he's playing Harden, you know, all of a sudden, Joe Harris, you know, it reminds me of Craig Elo and uh, B.J. Armstrong and on the Bulls team. Sure, you got Jordan Pippen and Rodman. All the other guys look great. Well, you got Irving and uh, Durant mm-hmm. and and also Blake Griffin's playing great and all these guys. All of a sudden, Joe Harris is wide open. He's draining threes all over the mm-hmm. place. And so they mm-hmm. got shooters. The, the Nets are going to win that series. Now, the question becomes, can the Sixers come back and beat the Hawks? I mean, we're down one nothing. Tonight's game is obviously crucial. If the Sixers lose game two at home, they've lost, they will have lost both at home. Joel Embiid did play. Um, I think his final stats were somewhere, I'm, I'm rounding, but he had like 40 and 10. So he played on a bad knee and he had 40 and 10. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think the Sixers are still going to pull out and win that series. Um I'll tell you, I'll make a prediction right now, though. You, you, we both wanted the Mavs to win that series. They didn't. Luka Doncic is great, but, you know, he, the talent around him is not enough. I'm not convinced the Clippers are beating Utah. I think we've been underselling Utah. Remember, Utah's the one seed. Let's be clear. You can call it what you want for the regular season. Utah is the number one seed in all of basketball. They won the most games this year. Mm-hmm. I see no reason to believe why they – I know they're not, betting-wise – I see no reason to believe why they wouldn't be favored over the Clippers. Well, let me give you 538's current numbers. You know, 538 takes their basketball model pretty seriously, and it's always fun to look at sure. the numbers. Right now, they have the Nets as the top, most likely team to win the finals. They have three teams. The next three most likely are all out of the West, and the chance of coming out of the West is pretty closely distributed across the three. So the Jazz at 35% coming out of the West, the Clippers at 31% to get out of the West, and the Suns at 28 That's a pretty fun race. Yeah, so what I assume is this is actually an interesting thing we study in marketing all the time. Let's suppose you take the ratio you just gave us, Cade, which is 35 for the Utah and 31 for the Clippers. Let's say it's you know a 10% addition. So it's 1.1, essentially. If I told you now that the Clippers won instead of the Jazz, would that number change for the next round? Or, or, or is it matchup oriented? My guess is it might not be as much as you think. In other words, those relative proportions are going to stay fairly yeah. constant, unless we learn to like the Clippers blow them out four to nothing. Then people right. might upgrade them. But right. I, I think I'm actually surprised. I actually give 538 a lot of credit. I think they're one of the few statistical models that has Utah as favored over the mm-hmm. Clippers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree with that completely. I don't know that they're going to win the series, but if you forced me to bet on the series, especially I'd have to look at the betting lines right now. Maybe Matt can put it in our box. My guess is the Clippers might be favored in the betting lines, and I think there's an arbitrage opportunity there because I think any rational statistical model, Utah should be favored. Mm-hmm. Do you think what any, about- what, what, which three, the three of those teams do you think 
would present the kind of Good do you question. think any, any three of those teams has the best matchup against the Nets? Who was it? Utah, the Clippers, and who was the third? Uh, the Suns. The, the the Suns. Yeah. I'd have to say it's the Clippers. And I, I, the reason I'd have to say so is because they've got, you know, Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. And that's it. Kawhi Leonard can get it done. I mean, you saw what happened in the game seven. Um, Kawhi Leonard just would not let them lose. He dropped 40-something. And, you know, and the reality was for the first five, this is what Cade's point about if they'd only played a five-game series, Dallas would have won. Um, Kawhi Leonard showed us in game six and seven who the best player on the court was. And it's not Doncic. And I'm not saying he's that far behind Doncic, yeah. uh, ahead of Doncic. But, I'm but that say, also is why what that's also why my five-game thing is kind of BS. Right, because Le- Leonard would have put his effort in in games four and five. But he showed that he's still the best player on that court. Yeah, 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 right. Listen, what about the NHL? We are farther along in the playoffs on the NHL. Shane's smiling. And our, you know, I pulled against them because they were going against our boy Dubas and the Leafs, but it's hard not to pull for Montreal. Shane, of course, went to college in Montreal. They are in some, in my mind, they're kind of the home of hockey. They are, they were the fourth seed in the North division. Yeah. And yet they've now they've won the North and they're advancing to the, to the final four. I think it's a great segue because, you know, we started out the NBA discussion with you kind of lamenting that, like, oh, the trouble with these seven game series is that it actually to leads to the best team winning in yeah. basketball. That does not happen in hockey or certainly not by record. I, I think it's it's interesting to note, given, you know, what's been happening in basketball, that in hockey, again, we've got Montreal coming out of the kind of northern division as the fourth seed. So, you yeah. know, uh, and, and the Islanders, you know, only have one game left to finish off the Bruins, and they would also be coming out of the east, their, their division as, as the fourth, fourth okay. at the fourth seed. Tampa, how about the Lightning? How about the Lightning? Lightning were the third seed. So, Yeah. And what about who oh, they're playing? Who and what about Carolina? Where they're playing? Carol, they're playing. Yeah, they're Carolina. playing Carolina, and that's actually a pretty even matchup. And where was Carolina? Were they the top? Uh, they, they were, I think, the second seed. I believe. Is that so right? you're saying none of the one seeds advanced? Well, no, Colorado, no, West. Colorado, it, Colorado is still got a pretty good chance of advancing. I mean, Vegas. So the the West is kind of the one sort of more basketball-y like type thing because one, I think one, Colorado two. and Vegas were one and two. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm one round ahead. They're, they're about yeah. to eliminate down to eight teams left. That's, That's right. right. So by the way, I'm seeing headlines, but I haven't read the details. There's a new, uh, uh, they're allowing, Canada's going to allow travel to the States for the, does that mean they're going to change up the location of the, of the tournament? Or are they going to keep it the way it was scheduled? Well, I can't. I, I'm not actually sure I saw what the plan was for the Stanley Cup finals. Actually, I thought it was going to be like, I, I mean, I think they were going to do sort of like home, you know, home versus home, you know, the usual. But how are they going to do that? Because Canada has these restrictions. Well, it, it's a good thing they came to that agreement. I don't know how <laughs> free agreement they were thinking of doing that. Huh. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, I don't have the, I don't, we should have the news on that. We don't, but there's yeah. something that's freed up just in the last day or two on Canadian travel. Um, well, this is definitely the time of year. If you don't watch hockey any other time of year, this is the time of year to dial it up and watch it. Back to the Canadians real quickly. Shane, what is conventional wisdom on, on goaltenders? The, the boring statistical thing to say would be, I think, yeah, goaltending uh, does uh, make a huge difference in who wins playoff games. It's just not predictive at all. So it's this thing that it determines who wins the game, like basically which hockey, which tender gets, gets hot but it's not very consistent game to game, but I'm not even sure that's true. So the Montreal goalie is this revered goalie. I think he played for the Canadian team, but he's, he's not that highly thought of by 
traditional stats. He's just kind of highly thought of by the insiders. And he's having a great Stanley Cup run so far. And I just don't know the, the full I – don't, I don't know the conventionalism right now and what, what goalies what – the, what, what, the, what the truth is to these hot goalies or what the underlying fundamentals are to the hot goalies in the playoffs. Unfortunately, <laughs> despite my attempt to stretch that question out, we lost Shane to technical difficulties. We'll, we'll get him back eventually, I'm sure. So Shane, we lost you there. Um, do, do you have anything, do you have any thoughts on hot goalies in the playoffs and the Montreal goalie, everyone's excited about it. Apparently he's like a clutch player and he's, he had a huge game seven against Toronto. And what is the current thinking on hot goalies in the playoffs? I mean, I, I, I mean, certainly price has had, you know, kind of a, a lot of history of performing well. I think he does kind of fulfill what we would, define as clutch as far as uh, goaltenders go. But I, I personally am a little skeptical of this hot goaltender mantra, or at least predictably hot goaltender. I, I do think hot goal, having a hot goaltender is a high determinant of success in the NHL playoffs. Predicting which goaltender yeah, or which right. team you season to season is going to get hot, I, yeah. think that, that there, I, I don't think there's really any kind of consistency to it. I mean, historically, there have been ones like Patrick Waugh was famous for this or Grand Fuhrer, you know, back in the day. But I think these days, I mean, predicting that it was going to be priced this year as opposed to flurry a couple years ago when Vegas went so far as opposed to, you know, yeah. you know, any, any one of these sort of goaltenders. I, I don't think there's much signal okay. there. I'm with I you. Assume, on that. I assume in the old days, though, what described and just correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, in the olden days, uh, pre let's call it advanced analytics, hot would mean. Goalie A was mediocre in the regular season, maybe measured by wins and losses, or maybe by save percentage, and said goalie performs a lot better in the playoffs. But now, with advanced analytics, couldn't we do a little bit better than that? Couldn't we say, here's the expected number of goals that the goalie would have given up, given this, and this person is outperforming expectation? Isn't this a wonderful example of analytics where it's not that the old stats are wrong. You know, you have win percentage, you have save percentage. Those are, but those are rougher proxies and expected goals given where the shots are from. And now I assume saying someone's a hot goalie, we could look at it game to game. We could look at it over. It doesn't, you know, if you've just won a series, does it carry over to the next game? And, you know, what happens? Do you Somebody's need a- done this. Somebody's- no, no, that's hot or. No, that's exactly that's that's great. That's a great point. And I think we can get now more precise about goaltender performance game to game and even like, you know, shot to shot, essentially, whether that would lead to kind of like whether that extra kind of precision would lead to kind of, you know, us actually establishing that there is, in fact, more consistency, you know, like between a goaltender's regular season and postseason performance or season to season, a goaltender's performance. I think that's unclear still because I don't think these, the, the kind of metrics you're describing are yet kind of as publicly available for us to do that. The key might be they're publicly available because you know that this has been done, that the, the teams have such better mm-hmm. data than we do publicly, but maybe it's floating around. Maybe we'll get someone to surface it for us since we may not be current on that. Speaking of important goaltender performance, the U.S. takes Mexico down in extra time just this past week. We're only three months away from World Cup qualifying. It's about time, fellas. It's only every four years we cover presidents. It's only a politics, that is. It's only every four years that we really start getting into, ho- into soccer. This time next summer, we're going to be neck deep in this stuff. What? And we're going to see some qualifying. And we get, we're, we're more suspenseful about U.S. qualifying now because we know it doesn't, it's not a given. 
Anybody paying attention to the Mexico-U.S. match last week? I mean, I, I saw the result. Um, am I wrong, though, that the U.S. failed to qualify for the Olympics, right? I don't know the answer to that. It wouldn't surprise I'm pretty me. sure we failed I, I to qualify. Matter of fact, I don't even think we got out of some, you know, North American qualifying something. <laughs> <It's> very dis- <laughs> yes. disappointing. As I remember, we talked about this on air maybe six months ago or something. Um, yeah, I mean, beating Mexico definitely means something. It, it makes me hopeful that we have an opportunity to qualify for the World Cup. Um, and, I, and you're the momentum guy, Eric. I mean, these guys gave up a cheap goal the first minute or two into the match. And so they, they dug themselves out of a hole against a big rival that, that if, you, if you think there's meaning in this, they will have a chance to derive some real meaning from it. No, and it's interesting. Historically, I feel like, you know, qualifying out of North America for the World Cup, it was always the U.S. and Mexico and some team. Right. And I think what's really kind of made it harder on the U.S. is the rise of like there's you know, there's a lot more kind of like good teams kind of coming out of the Caribbean and Central America, consistently good teams. So I I think it's it's you know, a lot of people frame this as kind of like, you know, kind of a failure of the U.S. system and certainly U.S. for the size of the country and the wealth and everything like that should be better at, at, you know, at soccer. But I think it also is an increasing comp, a victim of increasing competition within North America. Well, we have, a you know, the, one of the best players on the U S played for Chelsea's champion league championship season just this past summer. And so we've just, we're, we're we have players who are prominent on the, on the international stage in a way that yeah. we have in the past. Okay. Good fun. That's going to come up. We're going to have to get our buddy, Chris Alexopoulos back on our ESPN soccer producer to, Tell us the ins and outs of what's going on over there. Eric, we're mid-tournament over in Paris. Give us the update from Roland Guerra. Well, let, let me first start, by the way, uh, on the women's side, by the way. And, and there's a reason I want to start on the women's side. So um, two of the semifinalists are already determined. Um, one is, her last name is Pavlyachenkova. She's ranked number 31 in the world. Her seating is 31. And the other last one is Zadonsek, and she's unseated at all. Then in the other part of the draw, we're still at the quarterfinal round, but Coco Goff, American, she's still in it. She's ranked, she's seated 24th. Krajikova is who she's playing. She's unseated. The other two people playing are uh, Sakari, who's 17 seed, and Swiatek, who's actually the defending champion at, at the eight seed. So the highest seed left in the women's is eight. Um, it's very possible. It's not possible. We could end up with two unseated players, but one woman that's one woman that's in the finals will either be unseated or the 31 seed just to show you how much, um, you know, part of it was, um, you know, having to do with, well, Serena Williams lost a few rounds ago. Uh, Ash Barty had to pull out. Uh, Simona Halep didn't play in the tournament, but a lot of the women just lost and the, but that's one thing to notice. So the woman's side to me is just wide open. You know, this is, this is an opportunity for, for maybe this might be Coco Goff's time, 17 year old American. She made a deep run a couple of years ago and she's got an absolute chance. The men's side is the one that's more traditionally going on. And so, you know, um, we had the, if you'd like the half of death, which had uh, both Federer Nadal and Djokovic in it. Um, Federer won all of his matches, but his last match was, I guess, too trying for him. And so he actually ended up having to retire, basically saying, I'm not going to win this tournament anyway. Why am I going to kill myself? Um, but 
we have half of the men's semifinalist set. Let me get to that half. It's Alexander Zverev and Stefano Tsitsipas, the numbers five and six in the world. One of them will be in the finals. They're in the opposite half of Nadal and Djokovic. So one of them is going to have a chance to win the French Open. Mm-hmm. On the other side, it looks like we're going to end up with the Titanic clash in the semifinals of Djokovic and Nadal. Mm-hmm. And so where's your money on that one, Eric? Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you a stat. So, um, Nadal, we know he's the 13 time champion. He's now won 35 consecutive sets at the French open. I don't mean the forget the number of matches. He hasn't lost a set in 12 <laughs> matches. And that includes six, one or six love, six, two, seven, five last year in the finals against Djokovic. Okay. So my heavy money, heavy, heavy is on Nadal, heavy, okay. heavy money on Nadal. And again, um, he may go this tournament without losing a set again. So he's just absolute machine. The good news is on the men's side, that's not good news or bad news. It looks like the one, the three, the five, and the six will be the, t- the people in the finals, uh, in the semifinals um, with the number two, Medvedev, who we all talked about was 0-4 in the coming into the French Open. He had never won even a match on at the French Open. He got beaten in straight sets by Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals and the four seed with team. Eric, you were up in arms about his seeding. You were up I was in up in arms, arms last well, he week. Made it, he made, I know, but he beat me and I'm you. That, he didn't beat anybody. I know. I, I love that you're vindicated. That's I'm nice. Vindic- well, he, Congratulations. You know, Tsitsipas has been having a tremendous year on clay, including beating Nadal in one of these Masters 1000 tournaments in the finals on clay. Hmm. So okay. let me just say, by the way, I think Sitsipas is going to beat Zverev, and he's no guarantee to lose. He could oh, win fun. the finals, especially if Nadal wears himself out beating Djokovic. All right. That does sound like fun. Well, listen, if you're, if you're looking for some names you don't recognize but good sport, you might look begin to look at college baseball because they've moved from the regionals to the super regionals. Those have just been seeded. So we have the top 16 teams or at least the remaining 16 teams on the road to Omaha. These are, these are two team series to, to determine the, the eight teams that make it to Omaha for the college world series. So we're down to just Shane Jensen, but one trivia question. We're talking lots of seeds today, Shane, what of the top 16 seeds in the country coming out of regionals, they play little, little four team tournaments in regionals and, um, Yet six, yet yet the six, the sixteen regionals, the top team advances. How many? So we have sixteen teams left. How many of the seeds one through sixteen do you think made it to the super regionals? How many unseeded teams? Here's that. How many unseeded teams made it to the final sixteen? Um, they came out of four team tournaments. All right, I would say double, double elimination, four team tournaments. Yeah, and it's just two games, right? Like, uh, it's, it's it's just a game. Uh, uh, well, it's double elimination. Double so elimination. Yeah. Double elimination. Like half of them? More. 12 out of 16. 12 out okay. of 16. So we've still got a very strong field in the Super Regionals. Yeah. Now, we'll see. Now we're playing two out of three, I think, in the, in the Super Regionals to get to the College World Series. But good fun. It's yeah. that time of year. Our producer, Matty Datz, made the journey, the journey, the pilgrimage yeah. to Omaha a couple of years ago to take in the College World Series. So, it's a I think fun it's a thing. fun format because, you know, I mean, playoff baseball is already pretty coin flippy and only have like essentially two out of three game series or one 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 game series is like, you know, just making those coin flips that much more prominent. That's right. So they do a good job of giving lots of chances. So the, the, the regionals were double elimination. The supers are two out of three, I think. And then 
they've got a pretty complicated um, double elimination up in Omaha as well. Um, speaking of playoffs, Shane, did you see this news that all of a sudden people are talking about a 12 team college football playoff? No, I know the no. blue. Yeah, no, it, it seemed like, you know, the, the, the kind of the powers that be were, were, were squashing any talk of expanding it. And now it's going to be triple the number of teams. Um, it's, it's interesting that they would jump to 12 because of course that would imply that it's going to involve some kind of buy format for a subset of teams. Right. Which I just abhor. I hate, I hate buys in playoffs. It's I just, it's, it's too big an advantage at too critical a moment that you would just give a team a pass and like everybody else has 50% less chance of advancing than you do. You know, the, the only place I really think it's okay is these play in games where most teams have the same number of games and then kind of the extreme qualifiers have to play an extra one in that case, whatever. Fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I kind of like it a little bit in baseball because if you want to kind of preserve the importance of say winning a division, but you still okay. want to allow wildcard teams in it, it kind of makes sense that oh. our teams would sort of play an extra round, but I agree in football where there's not really, I mean, I, I understand they might want to, I, I don't know exactly how they would determine the buys, but you know, unless you're trying to incentivize some kind of thing, like a division winning that Good. has been disincentivizing by expanding the playoff format. I, I don't really like the buy system either. I think that's well, the it, only time it really kind of works. Yep. And so it's one of the reasons I hate what they did with the NFL playoffs. It's yes. just way too big an advantage to give teams buys. Like Especially that. this past season when it was only one team that got no, the it's buy. Abs- I thought that was complete, ridiculous. Completely absurd. Yeah. Okay. But Shane, you put your finger on an interesting wrinkle here. So let's acknowledge that this is way for, far from final and they're, the, the the groups that are considering this and proposing and talking about it, they're going to meet in like mid July, but it's going to sort in the next couple of months. And I did get advanced notice of this via a podcast, the Stuart Mandel, um, Bruce Feldman podcast, the audible. We've had both those guys on here before, but the, the audible college football podcast, they, they had heard that far more permutations were being considered than they even knew. Like every, like big tournaments had been considered and they were shocked by that, but I heard that a couple of weeks ago. And so this is an offshoot of that. There's been a small study group looking mm-hmm. at, at possibilities. And, you know, this news just came out today. And so we're just learning about it. But my, my understanding is that this is pushback from the big powers that be because they don't want to be blocked out by these automatics. You get too many automatics. Yeah. You got to give the automatics. I, I, the I had heard five. that it's more about preserving the number of at large, or at least having yeah, they, a large proportion of at large. It's like that, that second or in. third. It's that second or third SEC. I mean, SEC wants more teams in, and if you're going to yeah. give these automatics to a Group of Five and automatic to the Pac-12, my God, then you've got to give us more at larges. And what you're saying, Shane, which is really interesting, is that well, the buys aren't the worst thing in the world if you give them to the teams that won their conferences to yeah. kind of play their way in. Don't give them to what's going to happen. Shane is that Georgia is going to lose the sec title game to Alabama. They're not going to get the automatic bid. Then if they just allow everyone to seed, like just randomly seed based on strength, Georgia will be the number two seed right. after losing the sec yeah. final. And it's just all this bullshit is back to the same political thing that we've been dealing with in some version for years. So let's not have that. Let's at least give privilege to the conference winners who play their ways in, who win the conference, make that meaningful, even if the meaning is just a buy. Yeah, no, I mean, there's still going to be controversy, though, because, I mean, you, could, you can't give buys to all power, all conference That's winners. Right. The power That's five. right. Now you've got four buys to give. Pac-12, so. poor Pac-12. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. You have to play that first round game. 
All right, man. Good fun. Good to have some college football news in the middle of the summer. That has been three quarters of Wharton Money, but we still have a. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to Wharton Moneyball. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton's Department of Statistics, and I'm joined in the Zoom studio with uh, Shane Jensen and hopefully returning pretty soon, Kate Massey and Eric Bradlow. Um, in our fourth quarter, we're going to be interviewing Stephanie Epstein. I hope I pronounced that properly. Um, excellent, I did. Um, who is a senior baseball writer at Sports Illustrated. As a little bit of background, she's been with the organization for over 10 years, and prior to that was with ESPN. And you can follow her on Twitter if you want it, at Steph Epstein. So, Stephanie, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Um, we're going to talk about some of your most recent articles. Um, I guess I, I definitely want to talk about scuffing the baseballs, and I'm holding a baseball in preparation for such a conversation. But I want to begin by go- going back to the, to the tee-off with, with um, uh, Tony La Russa, and the fat 3-0 pitch that was thrown to Mercedes. I'm blanking out his first name right now. Um, and, uh, and basically, just the background is you're not supposed to do that. When, you're, when your team is up like mega runs, whatever the score was, and you throw a fat 3-0 pitch, the unwritten rules of baseball say that's, not, that's, not a, that's a no-go. And you wrote about that. Do you want to tell us what your take was on that? And- it did, yeah. Thanks for having me. My uh, yeah. my take was that I did not agree with the manager, Tony La Russa. Uh, I felt like this is not a particularly productive way for a manager to treat his players to begin with. And then beyond that, I just don't really follow that particular unwritten rule. I mean, the idea that it, there is a certain point at which you must stop trying doesn't seem very to make a lot of sense to me. He, he uh, said something about how you have to respect the game, respect your opponents. And I would say I do not find it very respectful of the opponents to say, okay, now I'm going to stop trying against you. I think you respect your opponents by trying. I actually, I, I'm going to agree with that. I'm, and I'm actually, just by way of background, I'm of the baseball traditionalist, um, you know, and I tend to stick up for the old ways. But I kind of agree with you on this point. One of the famous aphorisms of baseball is the game isn't over till it's over, which in mathematical language means an unlimited number of score runs can be scored at any point of the game, um, which means that why would you ever stop trying? So that's my, my obvious point there. Um, so, so, Shane, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I, I'll just add, I think, you know, part of this unwritten rule uh, is, you know, the way we got to that particular incident is that Tony La Russa, as he always does, burned through all his actual pitchers, right? Mm-hmm. Such mm-hmm. that a position player had to actually pitch. So it's, I, I just think it's interesting that Tony, you know, uh, to a certain extent, Tony La Russa doesn't like this kind of outcome where, you know, you're, you're hitting fat pitches off of position players. But it's partly his responsibility to not have gotten to that point where there are position players offering up fat pitches. Exactly. I'm going to just follow up by saying this is a innovation of analytics. The idea that you should start with an opener. Maybe they don't always do that. But pitch with six um, relievers and have a have more pitchers on the on the roster than hitters. And this causes this. This is they're just doing this to save their arms. What do you think about the idea that maybe they deserve it? Yeah, I think that's I think that's important too. That you know the Twins had they they chose to preserve their bullpen and use a position player to pitch, and I think that when that you know strategically their plan was so that then they could have those relievers available for the future games against the White Sox, and so I I do think the White Sox are allowed to try to clobber those guys. It's also Excellent. you know if some of the, the the sportsmanship or whatever is not 
you don't want to put up a terrible number on a guy who's maybe going to get sent down to AAA. You don't want to ruin his career. Well, this is a catcher slash DH for, slash first baseman. So right. you're not really worried that uh, Williams Estudillo was going to get sent down for his behavior. So I think that's for his pitching performance. I think that's okay. And plus Mercedes, you know, he's, he's I think he's 28. He's a rookie. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he needs to run. run. Yeah, and he's being evaluated based on how he hits. And at the end of the season, you're not going to look back and say, well, how many of those were against a position player on a 3-0 count? You're going to say, wow, that's a lot of home runs. And so he, I think every, for him, you know, every opportunity matters. And I think we should respect trying, basically. I agree. And I think we have, you know, all of us are, are kind of in agreement on this one. So maybe we should switch topics, Stephanie, and talk to the more more recent article, which very, very um, – Flamboyant, if we, if we will, controversial title. Uh, Sticky stuff is the new steroids. Um, so as a way of background, I'm holding a baseball. You can't see it. It's actually a scuffed up because I used one. I was hoping I had an original one. But baseballs are very um, hard to grip. And um, pitchers need to be able to grip them because in order to impart spin on the balls, they need to be able to grip the ball with great uh, tenacity, I guess. And, and so what has happened recently is there appears to be, and you can elaborate on this, appears, because I don't know for sure, that this, the pitchers are using more um, external modifiers to, to get a better grip, and that is having a profound outcome on the, on the game. And by using the title, it's the new steroids, um, I guess you're implying that this is a inappropriate disruption of the normal way of doing things. So I'll let you elaborate and explain what your thesis here is. Sure. Yeah. Well, so to start it, it is against the rules. You're not allowed to yeah. the baseball. You're not allowed to apply the, a substance to the baseball. The unwritten rules. No, 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 but, but just, just to clarify, you're not allowed to apply some of the specific substances to the baseball that are currently being discussed. Things like the ro- the rosin bag is out rosin there you're allowed to use specifically so that you can apply a foreign right, substance. Right. But that's the only one. Right. About the mud that and they use on the, the bar. First, the sort of lowest level of illegal substance they use is they'll spray their arms with uh, spray on sunscreen and they'll mix it with the rosin. And mm. even though that's half legal, that's still illegal. You know, even though they're, they're using a substance they're provided, it's still illegal. And then on the higher end of the sticky stuff is this substance called spider tack, which is actually designed for use in Ironman competitions so that people can lift those, those huge Atlas stones. Uh, and that in its advertisements shows somebody coating his hand with it touching it to uh, a cinder block and lifting the cinder block in the air. So that's how sticky we're talking uh, at the high levels. Okay, so can you explain? I mean, so first of all, this is different from scuffing the ball that like Gaylord Perry used to do, which would creates a differential airflow and creates some weird, untrackable movement. The purpose of this is to get a better grip so that you can you can throw more higher spin rate fastballs, for example, which will then um, r- uh, have a stronger backspin and therefore not drop as fast as they should. And the the, the, the batters will swing and miss. So that's that's the the alleged reason why this is uh, not, I mean kind of uh, illegal. Um, but on the other hand, um, there, do you think this is the principal reason why hitting is so pathetic this year? And I'm just going to be bold and say that. Yeah, I think it's I, I, we don't know exactly how much of the drought is is because of this. Uh, I think that's one of the things the league is hoping to find out if they start cracking down soon. We'll have pretty good data because we'll have in theory, at least we'll have almost half a season where we know they were all using it. And then in theory, more than half a season when hopefully they're not using it. And so they can get a sense, you know, offense is really down. It's getting really hard to watch. Do we need to move the mound back? Do we need to enlarge the bases? Do we need to ban pickoffs or can we just eliminate sticky stuff 
And will that be enough to get some runs back and some hits back, more importantly? Can I ask a, uh, just a simple matter of timeliness? What changed this year? I mean, this stuff presumably has been available for years. Why now? And, uh, and why suddenly a problem? It has been available for years, but it's been p- – pitchers were kind of guessing that it would work, and they weren't sure – exactly how well it was working in the past. So some of the substances are more advanced over the last couple of years, but the biggest change is that they have access to these pitch tracking devices and camera, high-speed cameras. So Rapsodo, Edgertronic, and TrackMan are the three big brands. And in about 2018, 2019, teams started uh, supplying every level of their operation with these cameras and tracking devices. And then They've become available at, you know, like the off-season gyms where these guys work out. Some of them own them themselves. And so instead of just assuming if I put something on the baseball, it's probably going to behave differently, they can actually stand with the track man. They can put something on. Sorry about the thunder. Uh, They can put something on the baseball. They can throw with it, and they can see, wow, that gave me another 200 RPMs. Or, you know, that gave me 400 RPMs. I'm going to stick with this one. Or it didn't do enough. I need to adjust how I apply it. And so suddenly – you have really good access. And then the other thing is that we're watching pitchers have success using it. And baseball is a big copycat sport. So as soon as they see players who seem to them to be using it and having success, they think, well, I got to get some of that. So well, Trevor- and, and I mean, I'll just sort of add on to kind of that, the copycat thing. It's, it's not just, I, 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 I kind of like your framing in the, the title of your article of, of it kind of being like similar to steroids in the sense, I think a similar culture has developed where, same as steroids when you know baseball players at the time that steroids were big were looking around especially the marginal players are looking around saying well everybody is is using this thing it's not being enforced against and i'm at a competitive disadvantage if i don't start doing this type of thing and so i think that same sort of thing like i think the lack of enforcement i guess over the last few years of of, of these kind of new substances has created this similar kind of culture where i think Players, you know, I mean, most players don't, you know, on the surface choose to cheat. But, you know, if if again, their livelihood kind of depends on these very kind of small, like, you know, and subtle, you know, sort of like advantages, which we all know baseball always is based on is very small and subtle advantages. Then, of course, they're going to be kind of pushed by their training staff, by their coaching staff and by just, you know, their their surrounding players into doing it. So I, I want to follow up with this uh, this idea that. Um, this can be stopped. I mean, because it seemed to be you, you, were, you were implying that, well, we've had a half a season of using it and now we're going to have a half a season of not using it. Um, how on earth are you going to stop this? I mean, just as a by way of background, um, I, I, uh, the, a very fresh baseball is extremely slippery. And so the umpires or the clubhouse uh, staff puts mud on it, which is its own story by in itself for, for, a, for a Delaware River. Uh, we live near the Delaware River, especially Shane. There's some secret spot n- near where you live, Shane, where there's mud, which is a collected and it's rubbed on the game on the ball. And that gives it a little tackiness. Um, and then there is, of course, rosin. Um, and there is uh, there's a, there's things that are kind of allowed. How do you establish a baseline? How do you what is what's planned to figure out how to stop it? I mean, there have been ideas talked. Uh, bandied about that you can look at, um, you know, look at the actual spin measurements. But that's, of course, after the fact. How do you stop it in the middle of the game? Is this something that you have any answers to? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of there are a few prongs they're going to try. One is to develop a baseball that doesn't need to be rubbed up with mud, that is tacky right out of the packaging, which is what they use in Japan and Korea. Uh, MLB has tried to make a couple of versions of it and the players haven't really liked it. They said the tack wore off too quickly. So that's something they are working on. 
They're working on developing a universal substance, so something like rosin, but a little bit stickier that everybody would be allowed to have. And then if they catch you using anything else, you're in real trouble. In the meantime, I think the plan is they've is what they're saying is that they are going to empower umpires to check on this eight to ten times per game. You know, they're going to really check pitchers a lot. Part of the issue right now is that every team has players doing this. And so no manager really, usually the umpires rely on the managers to say, Hey, could you go check the pitcher? Well, no manager wants to do that because he knows his guys are doing it too. So in the end, we sort of have just silence on both sides. So the idea is to empower the umpires and instruct them to, uh, to, to make these checks and then they will check, but you're right. They don't want to do it. You know, it'll, it would slow down the game to check them beforehand. So the other idea then is to check them after they come out of the game. And although the results from that game will be in, you then could be suspended if you've been misbehaving. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I'm, I have similar kind of questions about enforcement because, you know, okay, so the umpires are going to be checking the ball. How are they – are they just by feel supposed to determine that this is, you know, slightly tackier than it should be? I mean, especially given that, again, if everybody's doing it, it's kind of hard to baseline what the tackiness should be on balls that they're, they're receiving, like, you know, these eight to 10 balls that they test in a game. I mean, are, if they're all feel, if they all feel tacky, are they going to basically kick every single pitcher that, you know, they experience out of the game? Um, and in, a, in addition to that, you know, I, I, th- I guess it's the same sort of thing that like, you know, um, I, I don't know. They change out the ball like every three, four pitches. Is that about right? It, it's, it's random. I mean, it's as soon as it hits the ground, it's about gone. Eight right? pitches, I think on average. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I just I, I kind of feel like, you know, the, the other element of this is that asking the umpires to enforce this, even if they somehow were able to kind of tell when a ball was inordinately tacky. I mean, you know, the umpires are, are the ones that have been asked to enforce all these kind of, you know, change of pace, like speed up the game rules over the last few years and have not basically. Right. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem like the it doesn't seem like the umpires really kind of are particularly incentivized to do anything beyond the kind of bare minimum of the job that they need to do. So I, I don't, I just, I kind of, I guess I, I, I'm a little uncertain as to how, or a little bit not confident about, you know, this enforcement aspect. Yeah. Well, the plan I think is to check the pitcher, not the baseball. So that will help a little bit mm-hmm. in that it's not whether the ball is tacky. It's whether does the pitcher have residue on his glove? Does, you know, there are only so many places you can hide the goop that they're using. So They'll check the pitcher's hat. They'll check the pitcher's gloves. Sometimes it's on their socks. Sometimes it's on the inside of their belt. And they'll, I mean, often you can just look at the guy's hands, honestly, because it's so sticky. And so they'll check the the pitcher's person and see if he has it on him. And that way, it doesn't matter if one baseball doesn't get it because you'd still have the residue on the person. Are are pitchers no longer going to be allowed to use sunscreen? Because I thought Uh, mixing the rosin with sunscreen, I'm not sure how you would. It's harder. It's yeah, definitely hard. harder. I think it's the rosin with sunscreen doesn't make the baseball spin as hard as something like spider tack does. So I think they sort of figure it's still outlawed, but if they're only down on the spider tack guys, that's not the end of the world. If so, guys are getting away with sunscreen, that's okay. Stephanie, let me ask you about a couple other modifications that happened this year, sort of pretty, pretty dominantly. Um, the ball was um, made a little lighter, 1% lighter. And I also think they changed slightly the seam height and they tried to standardize the ball. Um, is there an interaction effect between spinning and lighter baseballs and the movement of a baseball? Yeah, there is. And I want to make clear to listeners because I, I think that's important for my story as well. They, the 1% is actually a huge difference. It sounds like it might not be a lot, but that is a massive difference. And yes, lighter baseballs do spin faster. So this appears to be a situation where they, they were trying to uh, 
make the ball a little bit to make the ball carry a little bit further, get a little more offense in the game. And instead it appears that they have done the opposite. They, uh, they accidentally seem to have created a ball that is dead. So, uh, so what, what I've heard is that it comes off the bat with the same velocity, but travels far less. Um, and, and, and that would argue, I'm not sure why that's the case. Maybe a lighter ball is more affected by the air. I don't know the physics. We probably should have Alan Nathan on to describe all these details for us. Um, but, uh, but also the aerodynamics of it. I've, I'm a, as, I've, as everybody on the show knows, I'm a Yankee fan. Do not mention what happened this weekend. Shane Jensen, who's not wearing his Red Sox cap. Um, but I, it's been disheartening to see balls. Out of, out of that, sympathy. Out of sympathy. That go to, the, go to the warning track that last year would have been out for sure. Um, and this, of course, has, has suppressed offense, but we always thought there was too much home runs, just not enough you know, activity, if you will, the, the, too many strikeouts. So it seems like a, it's almost like a perfect storm that is hurting baseball. So, let me, so I'm going to tr- tr- ask you sort of a general question about baseball. How would, if you were, this was asked to me recently by some of my graduating seniors. If I was the commissioner of baseball, and, uh, and uh, now I'm going to grant you that honor, you are now the commissioner of baseball, um, what would you do if you had one thing that you could do to, that would have to be implemented and imposed, what would, it, would that be to fix the game? I would cap the number of pitchers on a roster. Uh, I, I don't have the exact number, probably 10 or 12, may, may, mm-hmm. maybe 11, uh, mm-hmm. because I think that that, I think the biggest issue is that pitchers, are being you they're both sort of fungible and disposable at this point they let them come in throw as hard as they can for one inning and then they either you know they option them they put them on the injured list they basically everybody is throwing max effort all the time and i think that i think that they were trying to go for this with the three batter minimum but i think it was an ill-fated and sort of ill-thought-out plan what would what i think would help is if you cap the number of pitchers on the roster these players have to they they have to go longer they have to pitch deeper into games which means they can't throw as hard if they're not throwing as hard the ball is easier to hit and i think that then you would start to see an increase because that's really what we want to see is baseball from like 20 years ago right or 40 years ago 20 or 40 years ago they weren't throwing as hard every you know every pitch wasn't over 98 miles an hour and so i think that's the easiest way to do that is to make it difficult for them to do to throw so, them. So how would you rate the three? So just for our listeners who don't know the detail, they implemented this year a three batter minimum or um, the end of the inning. So and that was designed to speed up the game because there are so many pitching changes. Um, although if you actually look at the record, the the real reason for lengthy games is not numbers of pitchers. It's um, it's time between pitches. But what you're describing is increasing offense by making sure the pitchers have to pitch more. Therefore, they can't they can't they have to pace themselves more and therefore they they can't uh, throw it so hard. Um, But uh, uh, the counter argument to that, not not that I agree with you. I think that's I would I definitely think that is a good change. I'm not sure that's the one that I would predict, um, but it certainly is implementable and and that might actually achieve something. So so I like that it's a mix between directing at the problem and also very easy to do. You can't screw it up. Right. You can't. I mean, the thing that I have that I would I would argue would be to actually cut the time between pitches back to the 1981 average, which was around 14 seconds. For those of you at home or whoever watch a game on MLB where you have a 10 second uh, uh, fast forward, if you ever jump in a game in the middle, which I often do and, and start in the beginning, you, you see a pitch and you, you almost always have to jump, hit that button at least twice and then still wait between the, between the next pitch. So we're up around 25 seconds to get that down to 14 seconds would make the pitcher 
force the pitcher to not be overthrow because they only have about 14 seconds or so to get their catch their breath. Now, of course, they'd have some time, extra time they could use in key moments. But on average, they'd have to achieve that. But of course, the flaw in my plan is how do you enforce it? (laughs) And I'll also also push back against that particular thing in that in terms of pace of play, I mean, the batters stepping outside the I mean, it's not just on the pitcher that that we have these like long 25 second plays. The fact that batters are even allowed to step outside the box is a relatively new innovation. Right. But you could force the batter to say you can't do that without. No, that's right. I I just, you know, and I think that would very, very much help pace of play. I, I don't think that would necessarily um, turn the advantage against the pitchers to the same extent that some of these other things like, you know, like Stephanie's talking about, like a lot, you know, basically forcing pitchers to pitch longer and not throw, you know, every pitch like it's, you know, their last, which I also think like links back to what we were talking about with the uh, with the sticky, sticky baseballs as well. And that like, you know, being able to have that extra tackiness and control allows you to actually throw a lot harder than you otherwise kind of would as well. So, I mean, I think those two things enforcing that particular, you know, rule against foreign substances, in addition to maybe having a, a pitcher, um, you know, minimum maximum number of pitchers, I think would really kind of help, I guess, turn some of the advantages that pitching has built up relative to hitting over the last few years. Okay, so let me ask you, Stephanie, about some of the changes that are that are actually on the table, potentially. Uh, which one do you think are most likely to happen? Like, for example, do you think they really will cut down on the the, the scuffing of the baseball? Uh, others are, would they would they actually increase the size of the base? Um, would they actually move the, um, the the pitching mound back? Which of all the possibilities, and maybe there are others you, that, I, that, that I have. I'll, I'll just mention the other one, which yeah. is like, you know, uh, Basically, kind of reducing shifting by basically right. forcing two 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 fielders two infielders on either side of the second base. Which one of those things do you think is most likely, and which one would have the biggest impact? I do think they're going to try to reduce the amount of sticky stuff in the game. I think that's the next big thing you're going to see if you watch over the next you know two to three weeks. I think you're going to see a huge difference in spin rates of pitchers. I think. I think that is the, the league's big th- hope. They're really hoping they can fix that because they're hoping that if they can fix that, maybe they don't have to do the rest of that stuff. Maybe they don't have to move the mound back, cancel shifting, all that stuff. Uh, if the sticky stuff doesn't make enough of a change, I think I think outlawing shifting probably comes before changing the dimensions of the field. But I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll see how big a difference the sticky stuff makes. Do you think the players are in favor of that? I mean, is, that, is, there, is there a groundswell of support for – I mean, I would doubt that any pitcher on earth or even batter wants that mound move back an inch. I mean, a foot. Because that just changes the, their entire careers, right? Yeah. I don't think anybody's rooting for that change. No one's rooting for that. Is if people want the the shift to go away? I think Chain does. I'll, I'll spill that. Bit. Yeah, and I mean, I, I will say, I, you know, I wouldn't frame it necessarily as eliminating shifting. It would just be reducing kind of these extreme shifts. You know, I mean, you could still have a fairly dramatic shifts even within like a, you know even keeping kind of like the infielders you know split over uh, you know split across second base. Um, but yeah, I am in favor of that one. I think that one would help. But so I, I actually, I actually think you know the the. The, the you know the foreign substances and stuff like that and and the pitcher maximum you know on rosters would have a bigger effect well they're talking about bringing it down to 12 i think or, or 13 not not as far as 11 um it's actually quite embarrassing because it because the teams don't have enough position players when it's late in the game and they do swaps or they just don't have anyone to they have a catcher you always have to keep an extra catcher it's it's almost embarrassing what's happening on the offensive side but what's really embarrassing on the offensive side which i ask your opinion on is what happened to the yankees why do they suck <laughs> 
<laughs> that said with great, great admiration and affection and great frustration. I, I mean, I, I've been to few, several games. I watched many, many, many games this season. Their vaunted lineup looks terrible. And I guess you can turn it around and go, how come the Red Sox are good? Yeah, the Yankees are having a rough time. Uh, I think some of it is bad luck when it comes to injuries. Some of it is roster construction. They're incredibly right-handed hitting. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, when those guys aren't hitting well, that that's become a huge problem for them. They don't have – they're pretty stiff. They don't have a lot of athleticism. Uh, it was really on display, I think, against the Red Sox this weekend when you compare sort of how aggressive and creative – the Red Sox were with how stiff and kind of more boring to watch the Yankees were. I think it really, this is, I think really threw into stark relief the, the Yankees roster construction at this point. So, uh, you know, I, I think Aaron Boone's had kind of a rough time. I'm not sure if he's, I think he, he probably would look back on some of his decisions and change the way he's been handling uh, his staff so far. The staff has been pretty good. I mean, but I'm going to just react to a couple of things. The Yankees are known for having the largest and certainly one of the most effective analytics staff in, in, in baseball. Now, the, the Red Sox are, are no slouches in that department either. But so I f- find it interesting how the Yankee roster almost seems configured to be swing kings. They're, they're these, they want that uppercut, that home run swing. Um, and everyone looks like they're doing it regardless of the count, regardless of the situation. And the Red Sox seem so much more flexible do you, do you think that maybe the Yankees are, un, given all the changes in the ball, the velocity, the movement, that this isn't going to work? That what was working up until last year is not working anymore, and they just were too slow to react? Yeah, I think they're probably hurt more than most other teams by the changes in the baseball and by the just sort of the level of pitching dominance we're seeing so far this year because they really don't have the ability to string anything together. And so if the ball's not leaving the ballpark, you're kind of out of luck. Uh, and I think, I, you know, that's not an unreasonable roster construction, but that is something that, that the Yankees have really sort of hewed to over the years. And I don't know if they're going to get away with it forever. Wow. Well, Stephanie, I appreciated, uh, we all appreciated very much listening to you, uh, the, talking with you today um, on uh, Wharton Moneyball. So thanks you very much for joining us. That was uh, Stephanie Epstein, a senior baseball writer at Sports Illustrated. And we had the pleasure of talking, you know, a full half hour of baseball. Uh, couldn't be happier with the, uh, the, the conversation. And that also concludes our fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. A big shout out to our producer, Matt Datz, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. And uh, we all look forward to welcoming you again next week on Wharton Moneyball. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your stats. 